Good morning, church. This morning's passage is from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, and I'm reading from verse 25 through to 35. It's on the screen behind me, or you can follow in your Bibles or iPads, whatever. The passage before this talks about Jesus walking on the water. So the passage I'm reading follows on from that, and it's Jesus, the bread of life. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he, he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you this true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. That is the precious word of God. <clears throat> Great to be with you all, and a very special... Good morning and welcome to our friends at Inverell Baptist. We're so pleased that you're able to join us for this sermon series, I Am Jesus. We trust that it will be a great blessing to you as it, I'm sure, will be to us. Well, I love our Term 1 major series every year because I'm committed to always beginning the year by looking at either the life or the teaching of Jesus. And are there, is there anything better for Christians to be talking about than the life or the teaching of Jesus? So I trust that as we embark on this new series, it will be of great benefit and blessing to us, both individually, but also as a church congregation. Of all the identity statements that Jesus claimed for himself, the I am statements are some of the boldest. When a leader of a movement makes a bold claim or statement, it is generally the stuff of major headlines. Each time Jesus makes an I am statement, he is giving a different picture of who he is. Unique to John's gospel, Jesus makes eight I am statements, including I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the gate. 
I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. For Jesus to make I am statements or claims about himself is to effectively claim equal status with God. Something no priest or prophet would ever do. Now, either these claims are true and Jesus is worthy of complete and utter devotion, or these claims are false and blasphemous, and Jesus, in his context and culture, is deserving of death. And John, the author of this gospel, will lay out all the information for his readers to make a final decision for themselves. So what is an I am statement? I am is the self-pronounced name that God gave to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 to explain to the Israelites who had sent him to them. We read in Exodus 3, 13 and 14, Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am is a statement of absolute perfection. What God is saying in this statement is that in and of myself I am complete. And each time Jesus makes an I am statement, he is highlighting a particular aspect of his lordship. And he is also demonstrating that he fulfills the law. When Jesus fulfills the law, he brings the law to its completion. So in the person of Jesus, the law gets fulfilled. And today, as we heard from our reading, we are exploring the first of the I am statements, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In biblical times, bread was the staple food and in fact was a synonym for food itself. In other words, to say bread was to say food. Uh, To break bread was to share a meal, even though bread may only be one aspect or component of that meal. In the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, Jesus is teaching his disciples to seek God's provision for all their dietary requirements. Now, the Word of God was and is associated with bread. It is the most basic requirement for sustenance and nourishment. In Deuteronomy 8.3, we read, man does not live on bread alone, 
but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And Jesus quotes this passage from Deuteronomy in both Matthew 4 and Luke 4 when he's tempted by the devil to turn stones into bread during his 40 days in the wilderness. The Word of God was also interchangeable with the law of God. To honour the Word was to keep the law and to orientate one's life around keeping the law was about performing, about working hard to do the right thing and earn God's favour. It was, in some respects, about checking boxes, ensuring that I do what is right so that I uphold the law, and the law then sustains me. Fulfilling the requirements of the law was the goal of every good Jew, as unattainable as it may be. The Word, however, is now being revealed not as written law, but as a person, Christ Himself. The Word is not a law to keep or a rule to follow. Rather, the Word is a person to be followed. Jesus, not the law, is the source of eternal life. Eternal life will not come from fulfilling the law. Eternal life will come through following Jesus, who is the only one who can and did perfectly fulfill the law. John began his gospel with a very clear and unequivocal claim about who Jesus was and is. He writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. Now, if we are to fully grasp the magnitude of what Jesus means when He says, I am the bread of life, then we must appreciate the context in which this statement is made. The context, the midst in which this statement is made is vital, absolutely vital. And this teaching of Jesus is enveloped between two significant events. The first one is Passover. In John chapter 6, verse 4, there is what I would consider to be a throwaway verse. <laughs> the kind of verse that as someone who's read the Bible year after year after year, I wouldn't pay any attention to. And this is the verse. The Jewish Passover festival was near. That's it. And so often in our Bibles, we read verses like this, and because we're not part of that culture and that context, it means nothing to us. But John, the author, is incredibly 
in tune with what's happening, why Jesus made this statement when he did, and what's happening. Now, Passover was like Christmas. It came around but once a year, and it wasn't just a one-day affair. You know, I don't know if it was a whole month, but when you think about Christmas for us, it's like an entire month, isn't it? And so if it's kind of Christmas season, then Christmas is in everybody's mind. You cannot go to the shops and not know that it's Christmas. And so in this context, to say that Passover is near is like saying in December, Christmas is near. Of course it's near. And it occupies so much of our thoughts. So in the mind of a Jew, when they read that Passover was near, they get the gravity and the magnitude of all that that meant. Now, the other thing to note is that Jesus has just fed the 5,000. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about those two things briefly because they help us understand the context. So the first thing is the Passover. And Passover was an annual Jewish celebration that marked the Exodus event, Israel's defining moment where the glory of God was powerfully exercised, enabling Israel to become a nation of their own accord, no longer ruled or governed by the strong arm of Pharaoh. On the night before their journey into the desert, the angel of death passed over the homes of those whose doorposts were marked by the blood of a lamb, sparing the life of all the firstborn sons. On this night, the Israelites were instructed, among other things, to eat unleavened bread, which would sustain them for their journey the very next day. Then, when they were in the desert, God very graciously fed them manna, bread from heaven, for 40 years. Now, understandably, they got a bit sick of manna. As would you and I if we had to eat the same thing for 40 years. But that's not the point. The point is God in His graciousness and His goodness sustained and nourished and kept His people alive by feeding them bread. The Exodus event marks the deliverance of God's people from bondage and slavery and oppression and injustice. And Moses, a shadow figure of Jesus, is a type of redeemer, a shadow messiah, if you will, who rescues and delivers God's people from their oppression and hardship. The annual celebration of Passover reinforced and reminded the Jewish people of God's deliverance of their ancestors from slavery, the freedom that he purchased them, and the nourishment by which he sustained them in the desert, in the wilderness. And here's what the psalmist writes about this very Incident. Psalm 78, 23, 25. 
Yet he gave a command to the skies above and opened the doors of the heavens. He rained down manna for the people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. Human beings ate the bread of angels. He sent them all the food they could eat. What a picture of the grace of God. The food which was rained down to, from heaven sustained the Israelites and kept them alive. In a very tangible sense, the bread that was rained down became their temporal salvation. Without the bread from heaven, they would have famished and died. But God, in His goodness, sustained them. Passover is so much more than just about rescue and deliverance. Passover is also about sustenance and nourishment. Many years later, in a stable, in a small, obscure town called Bethlehem, the heavens would open and God would rain down the bread from heaven that would provide not temporal but eternal salvation for all who put their trust in Jesus and believe that he is who he said he was. Now, the other significant event is the feeding of the 5,000. And aside from this being an amazing miracle in itself, it was also one of many moments in Jesus' ministry where he reenacts what God had done for Israel. Right throughout the ministry of Jesus, we see him time after time fulfilling the law, bringing the law to completion. And while God fed the Israelites in the desert, Jesus now feeds hungry men and women in a desert. You see the parallels. And by doing so, he proves that he is God. Jesus reminds the crowd he is addressing in verse 32, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. But it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Jesus, in saying, I am the bread of life, is claiming equal status with God and therefore is effectively saying, It is I, it was I that fed you. And I am doing it again. I am your salvation. Whoever comes to me, Jesus says in verse 35, will never go hungry. By saying, I am the bread of life, Jesus is saying, 
I am your sustenance. I am your nourishment. I am your deliverer. I am your salvation. I am your God. So bread is synonymous with food. And food is essential for life. Jesus claims to be bread. Therefore, Jesus is essential for life. To live then, we need to feed on Jesus. How might we do this? In the text, his questioners ask the very same question. But you must remember, they're coming from a different context to what we are. And they say, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answers by saying, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. I can assure you that was not the answer they were either looking for or expecting. Give me a list of things I can do to fulfill the law, to earn my salvation. And you're now telling me that I have to believe in you. So what is belief in Jesus? It's the million-dollar question, isn't it? And how does belief in Jesus find expression? I want us to think about this in the context of food and eating, because this is the context in which the passage is set. People have eaten. Passover is near, and part of Passover is a celebration where they eat It's actually how they mark the occasion is by eating. So in order to survive, our bodies need food. However, eating is not a one-off affair. You don't sit down to a meal and eat one meal and say, well, I've been there and done that. No, it's something we continue to do Daily, in fact, several times a day. And this is how God has designed our bodies. In a similar fashion, we need to feed on Jesus. Belief in Jesus is not a one-off transaction. To simply say, I believe in Jesus, but not do anything with that belief is like saying, I believe in food and only eating one meal. Our belief and understanding that food is essential to life and survival brings about habits that backs up our belief. Everyone in this room would say that food is essential to life. 
And everyone in this room backs that belief up by eating, not once, not twice, but several times a day, every day. This is the way God designed it. Now, I've heard people say, I like food, of which I would completely agree. But I've never heard anyone in their right mind say, I don't like food. That would actually be unnatural. And at this point in time, I want to be sensitive and mindful of the fact that some people struggle with an eating disorder and might very well say, I don't like food. And these people need love and medical and psychological care and support. But my point is, it is unnatural for a human being not to eat and not to enjoy food. That is the way God has designed us. To believe in Jesus is to feed on Jesus. Eating is both necessary but also enjoyable. As I've thought a bit about eating this week, I've realised that there really is never a time or an occasion where I don't enjoy eating. Now, there are certain times and occasions where the food that I'm eating, maybe it's been prepared by a wonderful chef, or even better, by my own loving wife. (laughs) She didn't even hear that. No points for me. (laughs) On those occasions, I really, really love and enjoy the food that I eat. But even a simple, basic, boring bowl of wheat bix and milk or a cheese, ham and tomato toasty, which are kind of staple foods for me, are still enjoyable foods to eat. I enjoy that eating moment and ritual. Because I eat, I live. Eating is very natural to me. It just happens. I I don't even think about it. You know, I've trained my body. I've got all of these habits that mean that at certain points and times throughout the day, I eat. And I've organized my life in such a way as everyone else in this room has to ensure that when your body is ready to eat, there is food close at hand. We have pantries, we have fridges, we have lunch boxes, we have snacks, we have an array of things that enable us to ensure that whenever we're ready to eat, there is food close by. Does this make sense? Because we understand the value and the importance and the necessity of eating, we have structured our society, our kitchens, our homes in such a way that food will always be close by and at hand to support and back up a belief that eating is necessary to sustaining physical life. 
I asked Google how much time the average person spends eating over a lifetime, and of course, a study has been done. I discovered that the average American spends 67 minutes per day eating and drinking. Over the course of a lifetime, this equates to a staggering 32,098 hours, 32,000 hours eating and drinking beverages in one's lifetime. Uh, This time is certainly one thing, but what about quantity? Well, over the course of a lifetime, again, the average American consumes close to 32,000 kilos of food, and that is equivalent to six African bush elephants. (laughs) That's a lot of food. (laughs) This is Americans, people. Maybe we're five. Why do we eat so much food? Why do we spend so much time eating food? Because we know how important it is and we need it for survival. And for most people who have ready access to it, we have no trouble at all eating when we feel like it. We're fortunate, aren't we? And we take this moment now to acknowledge and to think of all of those in this world who don't have ready access to food. And Lord, we pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. It is never God's will for anyone to go hungry and to be without. Now we've spoken about the importance of physical food. But we are not only physical beings... We are also spiritual beings. And to avoid spiritual death, we need spiritual food. Spiritual sustenance, nourishment. And my question to you is, not about your physical diet, but about your spiritual diet. Are you satisfied? Are you full? Or are you malnourished? Are you starving? Are you famished for spiritual food? What is the state of your soul? Jesus says to you, I am the bread of life. Come to me and have your fill. Listen. To me, walk with me, lean on me, for my burden is light. Rest in me, believe in me. Is this not 
the most beautiful invitation. And it is available to everyone. It is available to you today. How might we feed on Jesus? Well, there are a number of ways. And the first and most obvious place is the Bible, God's Word. For it is here that we hear His voice. It is here that we learn His will. It is here where we read these wonderful invitations to come. We feed on Jesus through prayer, through regular and ongoing conversation with Him. We feed on Jesus by spending time with others who love Jesus, who will encourage us in our spiritual walk. We feed on Jesus by serving Him and joining Him on His mission to complete the work which He started and left to the church, you and I. We feed on Jesus by filling our minds and our hearts with Him, words to live by. Last Sunday, I spoke about the study Willow Creek conducted to try and discover how people grow spiritually along this continuum of four stages. And the one common feature that came up for every person who made the transition, and if you weren't here last Sunday, you must listen to the message because there is so much context around our vision as a church that you need to know. But there is very little that takes place in these three transitions, exploring Christ, growing in Christ, and close to Christ. The greatest, most significant transition where a person really starts to become spiritually mature is when they shift from being close to Christ to Christ-centered. And the one common denominator between every single person who was Christ-centered is that they read God's Word. They read God's Word daily. Interestingly, no matter where a person is on the spiritual continuum, reflection on Scripture has the greatest impact on growth. The number one thing you can do to grow as a Christian is to read the Bible or to listen to the Bible. There are now so many ways that we can take in the Word of God. We now have the Bible on our phones in our pocket that we can listen to when we drive or when we wash up the dishes or when we shave in the mornings or when we're preparing a meal. There is, there is no way that we cannot access God's Word now. There has never been a time in human history where God's Word was so accessible as what it is today. 
It is free on the internet. You don't have to own a cent. You can go to the library, log on to the free internet. God's Word is so abundantly accessible. LifeWay Research conducted a survey about Bible reading habits of church attenders and discovered that only 19% of church attenders read the Bible daily. 18% said rarely or ever. Research also revealed that Christians who participate in small groups are more likely to read their Bible and pray. In fact, being, evo- being involved in some kind of group of other believers made it more than twice as likely that you would read your Bible. Now, if you're not in a growth group, regularly experiencing community and fellowship with other believers, and if you are not feeding on God's Word for yourself, you are going to struggle to grow spiritually. I really want to emphasize at this moment that reading or listening to the Word of God is not about guilt or shame or shoulds. And if that's your motivation then you're not going to receive the word as the word is intended to be received. It's about cultivating a habit that we know is good for us. In exactly the same way, we cultivate habits with eating because we know that eating is good for us. I have never in my life heard a person say, I don't have time to eat. It's too hard. But countless times, I have heard people say, I don't have time to read my Bible. Reading and feeding on God's Word can become a habit. It can, in fact, become as regular and routine and necessary as eating food. Can you imagine what your life might be like if you fed on God's Word every day without even thinking about it? It just becomes something you do. Are you going to grow? My word, you will. Apparently, it takes 21 days to make a habit. And very conveniently, there are 21 chapters in the Gospel of John. Some of you here this morning already have a routine and a habit and a rhythm of reading the Scriptures of which I've spoken. 
And to you I say, well done. Keep going. But for those of us who have not yet cultivated such a habit, I will put to you this challenge. Can you make time to read John for the next 21 days? One chapter a day is all I ask. Listen to it or read it. However you hear it, allow the Gospel of John to come into your life. Ideally, I invite you and encourage you to read or listen at the same time in the same place. And the reason I say this is it is essential for building a habit. At seven o'clock, Brendan is like a robot. He knows it's Weetbix time. And very often I'm still trying to do something. And like, okay, okay, come on, mate, let's have our Weetbix. He's trained himself. And it's all routine. And so if you read God's Word at the same place in the same time, very soon your body will actually start to tell you it's time for God's Word. After 21 days, you will have formed a habit. And from the Gospel of John, you can then launch pad yourself into the richness and the depth of the Scriptures. You might like to just keep reading John That wouldn't be a bad thing to do at all. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the bread of life. Just as your body needs physical food for nourishment and sustenance, so too your soul needs spiritual food for spiritual nourishment and sustenance. Feed on the bread of of life, the first and primary place that you will do this is by reading or listening, reflecting, following, and living by the Word of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the bread of life, that you fulfilled every law, every law that we could never fulfill or keep to earn salvation. And you invite us to simply believe in you and through believing in you, our salvation is accomplished and our unrighteous acts are traded or exchanged for your perfection and righteousness. And we thank you for this. I want to pray very specifically this morning for each person who is here that you, by your Holy Spirit, would stir within them a hunger 
and a desire for your word, which is truth. And that you would help each of us to cultivate a habit of feeding on you by feeding on Scripture. May the word come alive for us. May it not become a mundane or boring exercise that we do to tick boxes, but may it become life-giving and may it be as enjoyable as eating a beautifully prepared meal that has been cooked with love. We love you, Lord, and we thank you that you are our bread for life. Amen.